so if you, uh, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll have um, heard uh, John Woods preach on the first part of this chapter. He was uh, studying the Last Supper, and um, uh, John uh, uh, did a great message. I, I listened to it with Alfie about half eleven last night. So uh, it was a great sermon. And, uh, but uh, we're finishing off the chapter this morning. So we're in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 24 to 38. Uh, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, Before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Let's have a word of prayer before we unpack this passage. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning and thank you for your holy word. Uh, These are your words that we read, inspired by you. Uh, They are words of truth and uh, Father we want to hear your voice this morning. So by your Holy Spirit may we be, may our hearts and minds be open and attentive to you. For we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've been desperately trying to explain something to somebody and they just don't get it. Uh, I frequently have this with Miriam. I have to say, often, oftentimes I'm desperately trying to explain something that makes perfect sense to me and she just doesn't get it. So generally something to do with geography or, well, anything, to do, anything that has anything to do with anything other than musical theatre, often it's a mystery to Miriam. So, you, so for Miriam, every day is a school day, she's always learning something and sometimes you have those moments where you're just trying to explain something that makes perfect sense to you and she just doesn't get it. And I don't know if you, if you are going to have those times when you're trying to do that, but we've For Jesus, this is kind of what's going on in this passage. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's just hours away from going to the cross. And he's been trying to explain to his disciples what's going to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. And they just don't get it. The the last verse that I read, verse 38, 
Uh, some of you read, the disciples say, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, that's enough. Jesus isn't saying, oh, two swords will be enough. He's, he's basically saying, for crying out loud, why are you so dull? I'm just, let's just give it up. I'm trying desperately to explain to you what's going to happen. And you just don't get it. And Jesus is like, I'm just giving up. <laughs> you are so dull. You're going to remember this later. But for now, I'm just... I'm just going to quit while I'm not too far behind because literally they don't get it. And that's when he says that's enough. Because if you think about it, you know, two swords against Roman legions, you know, they're going to last 30 seconds. Even if all of them sell their cloaks and end up with 12 swords, still not going to be enough. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying raise an army and have two swords. You'll be all right. He's saying, I just I just give up. (laughs) Literally, you're not going to. Which is, you know, Jesus is about to go through the biggest trial of his life. It's the moment when he really needs his closest friends to be on board. He really needs his closest friends to be with him. And he, realize, and he knows that they're not. He knows that they're not going to be there. But he's doing his best to try and explain to them what's going on. And there are kind of three little... I, I was... I had a dream. I dreamt last night I was preaching this sermon. <laughs> Sometimes I have dreams which are kind of more nightmares because I find myself in a dream. I'm kind of at the front or in a pulpit and I literally don't know what I'm going to say. I think it's kind of the, the it's kind of preacher's nightmare is you, you're in the pulpit and you literally don't know what you're going to say. But last night I dreamt I was preaching this sermon. And in the dream, I was telling you that there are three sermons that could be preached from this passage. So I'm not going to give you three kind of half-hour sermons, you're going to kind of get it all in, the, all in one. But there are, there are three kind of th- things that go on. And the first one is this dispute about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus has told them frequently and repeatedly that he's come to serve. Uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, he says, The Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve. Uh, the whole way that Jesus lives out his life is he doing this. He's literally just washed their feet. He's literally just taken off his robe and uh, taken the place of the most menial slave and washed their feet. Before this meal, that's what he does. He washes their feet and he says, I've set you an example. And now they're squabbling over who's going to be the greatest. The way the table will be set out, uh, four sides to the table and you sit on three sides of the table. Uh, The host sits in the middle of the uh, kind of the, the end of the tea. And uh, the first most important person goes on the right. The second most important person goes on the left. The third most important person goes second and so on and so forth. So if you're kind of right on the end, you know, you know, you know where you're at. You know, you're, you're kind of the, the least important. And they're arguing about, well, who's, who's going to be on his right? Who's, you know, where are we going to be? Because they've completely not understood this thing about service. So he says, he says, look, the kings, the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. The greatest among you should be the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. Uh, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. The the kingdom of God works differently to the kingdom of the world. And yet so often, even in the church, we don't see leaders as servants. 
When, um, when Durham Cathedral was built about 1,200 years ago, the Bishop of Durham wanted to show that he had more authority than the Pope. So he dispatched his architect to Rome to measure the height of the Pope's throne in St. Peter's. And then the architect, and, you know, he couldn't just jump on EasyJet. That was quite a trek going all the way to Rome with his tape measure. But he measured the throne and then he came back to Durham. And when the cathedral was built, the bishop's throne was an inch taller. Because the bishop of Durham wanted to show that he was, he was more of a leader. He had more authority than the, than the Pope. It, it's such a tragedy in churches where people jockey for position. Uh, where people, they kind of want position. And it's in all of us because... You know, as human beings, we're, we're fallen and there's always that, you know, that thing of, of comparison. And you see someone who seems to have a, a bigger platform than you do. And there's something in our sinful nature that responds to that and says, and rather than rejoicing with where they are, there's something in us that says, oh, well, I wish I had a, I wish I was more prominent than you are. And it's all about our identity. And, but that's, you know, that's in us. There's this ambition in us. And so often in the church, we see it we just don't listen to what Jesus says he says that you need to serve he says I'm here as the one who serves he's literally just washed their feet I remember reading a book on leadership by David Pitches who who founded the new wine movement 30 odd years ago and he says when you're looking for leaders he says just you know watch watch what people do he says you know in, in the book he says he says who comes early uh, who leaves last? Uh, who puts the chairs out? Who does the washing up? He says, that's where you'll find your leaders. And, uh, you know, that's what Jesus says. That's what we should be like. We should always be thinking, well, how can I serve? How can I serve? How can I be a, how can I be a servant? How can I meet the needs of those around me? Rather than, well, how can the people around me meet my needs? How can the people around me give me approval or boost my ego then how can I serve and he's literally about to go to the cross and die as a common criminal that's how Jesus serves us that's the example that he sets not just that he takes the most menial uh, role of a slave and washes his disciples feet but even more than that he goes to the cross he dies the death of a man who has been cursed by God that's what the old testament says Whoever dies on a tree is cursed. That's how low he is prepared to go to serve us. And yet so often we get it wrong. So often in the church we get it wrong. I don't know if you saw in the news there was um, a pastor in New York. Uh, was it two, a fortnight ago? And uh, he was wearing a million dollars worth of jewellery. And uh, surprisingly enough, people walked into the service and robbed him. <laughs> and I kind of thought, why are you wearing a million dollars worth of jewellery and driving around in a Rolls Royce? Why are you not on your knees serving your congregation and serving your church? It's so, we have to, you know, we have this selfish human nature that, you know, Jenny was just saying, just in, the, in her context, about surrender. It's about surrender. The Christian life is about surrender. It's about sacrifice. It's about service. And, and the church is, is beautiful when it's a community of people who are just thinking, well, how can I serve? How can I serve one another? How can I serve my brother and sister? How can I serve my community? How can I sacrifice myself on behalf of others?
And the disciples don't get it. They're squabbling about who's going to be the greatest. But Jesus, you know, Jesus always teaches something that we can come back to. Because sometimes it takes a while to get our heads around things. We have to kind of keep coming back to it. And then the most extraordinary thing, verse 28. Jesus knows that in a few hours time, his disciples are all going to abandon him. They're all going to run away. And yet he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Just amazing. He knows how badly they're about to let him down and he cheers them on. He's cheering them on. It's just the beautiful heart of Jesus that when he's about to be most badly let down by his closest friends, he's gassing them up. I think that's the... I think that's the way youngsters. He's gassing them up, isn't it? Yes. I learned, a, again, I learned a whole new language from Miriam. He's gassing them up. He's like bigging them up. He's like, you are those who stood by me in my trials. And they have, because he spent three years being, you know, um, you know, slandered and misunderstood and, con, you know, condemned and people. And they have kind of stood with him, you know, falteringly and misunderstanding. But they have stood by him. And then he makes this just extraordinary thing. He says, I confer on you a kingdom. I'm giving you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the most extraordinary thing. Most extraordinary thing. You've stood with me. Thank you. I'm going to give you a kingdom like the kingdom my father gave to me. This is the kingdom that we pray for when we say the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. This is the kingdom that Jesus has shown them through his ministry. Remember, uh, you know, a few months ago when we were back in chapter eight, we went through those four storms in Luke chapter eight, where, where Jesus walks into situations that, humanly speaking, are, are out of control. And yet Jesus steps in and brings the kingdom of God to bear. And suddenly they're all turned around. The storm on the lake, Jesus calms it. The demon-possessed man, Jesus sets him free. Uh, The woman with the issue of blood spent 12 years and Jesus heals her. She touches the hem of his robe. Instantly she's healed. Jairus' daughter who's dead, Jesus raises her. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. We read at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 21 what the kingdom of God will look like when Jesus returns. And we see it in completeness. No more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. Jesus says, I'm giving you A kingdom, that's the kingdom that we see when a little four-year-old boy gets his hearing back. That's the kingdom that we see when someone finds deliverance. That's the kingdom that we see when someone finds salvation. Jesus says, I'm giving you a kingdom. That's why the disciples after the resurrection are told to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power. Because it's a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom not just of information, but of transformation. Not just that Jesus died for you on the cross and your sins can be forgiven, but that Jesus wants to change your life. He wants to turn your life around. He wants to free you from your addictions. He wants to free you from your whatever it is that you wrestle with and struggle with. Jesus wants to set you free. He's giving us a kingdom. He says, ultimately, to the 12 apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's, that's the promise. And Jesus says all of this just hours before he knows they're going to 
abandon him and run away. Just the extraordinary love and patience and forbearance of God that he has with us. Which leads into this um, next little um, kind of vignette of Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And um, you've got to love Simon Peter. He just, you know, he's, he's like 100% enthusiasm. He's like, he's always there. He just speaks first and then thinks afterwards. And he's like, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he's not lying. He absolutely is. He just doesn't realise that he's not ready for that. <laughs> the day will come when that's exactly what will happen. One day, Peter will be crucified upside down. But not this day, because he's not ready. And Jesus knows it. He says, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you'll deny three times that you even know me. But Peter's like, you know, I'm gonna do, have you ever had, had those moments? Sometimes you get... You get so caught up in worship. I've done this a zillion times. You get so caught up in worship and in the goodness of God and the love of God. And you say, Lord, I'll do anything for you. You know, whatever you ask of me, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And then he says, and then God says, oh, really? Uh, I remember one time years ago at New Wine, uh, just, uh, just kind of just committing my life to the, to the Lord and just praying that prayer and just saying, Lord, you are so good. You've been so good to me. Lord, I'll do you know, I'll, I would do anything. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. And, and he just said, he said, well, will you really? He said, will you really, when it's really tough and when it's really hard and when you're really facing opposition, will you really? Will you still do it then? Even um, just this last week, the Lord um, was speaking to me again. Uh, I, just, I just felt he showed me... Very clearly, a couple of times, the same picture of, of just being in a storm, just being caught up in a storm, but it would be all right. And I just, I just have a sense that you know, there's a storm coming. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, things are going to get worse before they get better. There's a, there's a storm, but, um, but God is good and God is in it and, and God will be in the storm. So it will be... It'll be all right. But, you know, so often with Peter, we say, Lord, I'll do anything. And the Lord says, ah, just be careful what you say, because I might take you up on it. <laughs> and then you might fall flat on your face like Peter does. Now, this is all very interesting. Uh, verse 31, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So there's a couple of things in that. First of all, the you is plural. So... Although this is a particular attack on, on Simon Peter, um, Jesus says, so Satan has asked to sift all of you. You're all going to be tested. You know, you 12 apostles, you 12, you are all going to be tested. But here's the funny thing, or the interesting thing. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now that's, that's interesting. Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. And presumably, God has said yes. You can do it. Three interesting things that flow out of that. Firstly, that um, the Satan is not as powerful as sometimes we think he is. Satan doesn't have the sovereignty of God. Satan doesn't have the knowledge of God. Satan doesn't have the power of God. When you read the book of Job in the Old Testament, uh, Satan only acts with God's permission. And God places a limit 
on what Satan is, is allowed to do. So we know that we're caught up in a spiritual battle. We were thinking about this at Life Group a couple of um, uh, Wednesdays ago when we were, we were thinking about um, the power of prayer and the spiritual battle that we're caught up in. But the battle that we're caught up in is it's not a kind of you know, two equal and opposite forces. It's not that God and Satan are equal and opposite forces. It's not a Hollywood movie. Uh, Satan is, is a fallen creature, as we are, and there are limits to his authority. So Satan doesn't have that sovereignty. He, he kind of has to ask permission, and God in his sovereignty allows it. Now, why on earth? Why on earth would God allow Satan to act at all? Well, we live, in a, we live in a fallen world. God's kingdom is breaking in. The problem is, in our, in our sinful lives, we just repeatedly give Satan a place to land. In our, in our, that's what sin does. That's why sin is so serious. Because sin opens a door for Satan to get in and have a go. It gives Satan a, a landing pad. Just you know, think about the way that we think about things. So often Satan gets in on, in the way that we think. Uh, we have a negative thought and Satan jumps on the back of it and he makes it a bigger thought. Uh, and then it becomes a distraction. And then it leads us down a path that we, that we shouldn't have gone down. You see, Satan knows that his influence and power is quite limited. And the thing is, we just help him. We help Satan out all the time by just opening doors and giving him things to land on and things that he can exploit in our lives, the weaknesses that are in our lives. Satan jumps in. So, uh, so Jesus says, I'm same as asked to sift you as wheat. So here's an interesting thing. Jesus knows Simon Peter is going to fall flat on his face before he does. <laughs> when Simon Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death, Jesus knows that's not going to happen. <laughs> not yet. But Jesus doesn't give up on him. Jesus prays for him. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that really beautiful? Jesus knows that you're going to mess up. <laughs> he knows that I'm going to mess up. He knows that I'm going to make him a promise and not follow through on it. He knows that you're going to make him a promise and not follow through on it. And he's going to pray for us while we fall flat on our face so that we'll get up and carry on. That just the most, just the most extraordinary grace of God. You know, when we think about, you know, when you mess up, how do you feel about yourself? Sometimes do you give up on yourself when you, you make a mistake or you fail or something comes out of your mouth? You think, why did I say that? Or you, you do something and you just, you, you just give up in despair. You think, oh, I'm hopeless. Why, why do I do that? We, we, Jesus doesn't give up on us. What do we do when, when friends, or fa- when we let each other down? Now what happens when you know, you're relying on a friend to be there for you, and then they let you down? And what, and what do we do? We're like, oh, typical. Knew you'd do that. Knew I couldn't rely on you. We kind of give up. And do- what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. His heart is so big that he prays to Simon Peter. He knows that it is hour of need, Simon Peter's not going to be there for him. And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, 
strengthen your brothers. Just the most, just the most lovely thing. That Jesus knows we're going to fall flat on our face before we do. And when we do, he'll pray for us. He's interceding for us in heaven. And then he'll help us get back up and carry on. It's just lovely. I was, I was just, as I was preparing this, I was just thinking back, a, a, you know, seven years to just, the, you know, after Sarah left and just going through the most, the most difficult time of my life. Just the most extraordinary, just the most extraordinary battle just to get up in the morning and find some way of functioning and just trying to find ways of coping with that emotional pain and just going through a, just through a season where, you know, I just did stuff that I, you know, would, was deeply ashamed of at the, at the time. They were just kind of things that you do in order to, to survive. And, uh, and I remember one, uh, one Sunday morning, it was a season where I I was going regularly to the eight o'clock communion service uh, down at the parish church before I came up here. And, um, and I remember the Saturday night before had just been just a really bad night. And I'd done all the things that I was doing to try and survive and was just kind of giving up, almost giving up on myself, just feeling so ashamed of what I had done. And I remember going down to the parish church and just kind of slumping in the pew and I could hardly, I didn't know what to say to the Lord. I just felt I'd let him down so badly. And I just kind of slumped in the pew and I, I didn't know what to say to him. But I just knew it was okay to be there and that he was there. And I think I said a few weeks ago, I, I just heard his voice saying, I still love you. Let's start from here. I still love you. Let's start from here. When we give up on ourselves, God says, I still love you. Let's start from here. And when we give up on each other, we should actually be saying, I still love you. Let's start from here. Uh, And I came back up here and somehow preached by God's grace. He never gives up on us. He knows we're going to fall flat on our faces. And he's praying for us. Just beautiful. Then the last little, um, verse 35, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. But now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. He's not literally telling them to go and sell their cloaks and buy swords. But they just don't, they just don't get it. He's, he's trying to get them to get their heads around the fact that he's not always going to be with them. There are different seasons. They've lived through a season of three years where Jesus has been with them. And so when he sent them out on mission, and we studied it a few months ago, you know, he said, don't take anything with you. Don't take anything. Don't take a person. They're learning about just how to rely on him. They're learning about how the kingdom works while he's kind of present with them. And so they go out on mission. They don't take anything with them. And they see people healed and delivered and restored and, 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 and come to Jesus. And, that's the and they think that's how it's always going to be. Or at least how it's going to be for a long time. You see, they think they're coming to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Gentiles are going to be kicked out. The Romans are going to be kicked out. Jesus is going to be the new Messiah. is going to be enthroned. They're going to be seated in his cabinet. And, it's, and that's how it's going to continue. And Jesus is like desperately trying to get through to them. No, I'm not always going to be with you. There is a new season coming. I was trying to think of a a kind of a modern equivalent and I was racking my brain. 
And the best I could come up with, which is really not very good, is when somebody says to you, oh, you need to pull your socks up. They don't literally mean you need to pull your socks up, do they? They mean you need to make more effort. You know, you've got to put more effort into this. It's, it's just a kind of a little saying, isn't it? It's like, oh, for goodness sake, will you pull your socks up? When Jesus says, you know, if you've got a purse taken, if you've got a bag, that's the kind of thing he's saying. He's saying, look, things are about to change and it's, you need to get ready for a battle because you're about to enter a, a, a different kind of battle from the one that we've been fighting for the last three years. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. And then you're going to build my kingdom but you're going to be crucified as you do it. And you're going to be opposed as you do it. So you need to get your head around the fact that things are going to be different. This is the season that, that we live in. God has conferred on us a kingdom, but we also need to be very practical about the way in which we build God's kingdom. And the disciples don't get it. They're like, oh, we found two swords. <laughs> Jesus is like... Oh, for crying out loud, <laughs> let's, just, let's just go and get on with this thing because I know what's going to happen. You're all going to let me down. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I'm going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and you're all going to leg it and fall asleep. They're going to come and arrest me. But I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And it's all going to be okay because God is sovereign over it all. One last thing. Why does... Why does Simon Peter go through the thing that he does? Why does he go through his testing? Because, because a day will come when Peter will be crucified upside down and he will die for Jesus. In this moment, he's, he's not yet ready. But how does he become ready? Uh, because he's tested. Because he's tested in this moment and he's tested most... And it's... You see, why does, why does God allow Satan to have some activity? Why does God allow Satan to have, you know, some fight against us? Well, because it, it strengthens us. It's the battles that make us stronger. Uh, if Simon Peter had never been tested, maybe he would never have got to that point where he was actually willing to die for Jesus. When I look back over the times that I've been tested and the trials that I've been through, one of the things that I've, I've learned to say when I'm being tested is, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you think I can get through this season. You actually think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can get through this season. This is way too difficult But if you're letting me, if you're allowing me to go through it, you must think that I can. Say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this time of trial. I have to say, there are times when I don't say thank you for this time of trial. I'm not, you know, there are times where I'm like, blooming neck, Lord. Another one? (laughs) How many storms does one person have to go through? But when I'm kind of in my more gracious, I'm like, Lord, thank you. You must really think I can do this. This is, this is preparing me for something yet to come. This is preparing me for something yet to come. The battles make us stronger. And we can win the battles because he doesn't change. And he's with us. And he's working all things for our good. That's either true or it isn't. He's working all things for our good. That's his 
promise. So let's, um, let's just take a moment to, to pray and to just to, to ask the Lord, how, how, do, how does he want us to respond to what he's said to us this morning? And, and uh, you know, the Lord will want, he'll want us to take something away. Holy Spirit, what is it you want us to take away? Is our challenge this morning, is it something about surrender? Then actually we need to come and surrender and just say, Lord, Lord, I want to serve. I want to serve. I, I need to humble myself. I need to, in, f- in fact, I'm just going to issue a challenge. If, if, if that's speaking to you, just come and, why don't you just come and stand at the front, just as in, in an act of surrender. Sometimes it's good to, to kind of actually do something. If you know the Lord's just saying, just challenging you, just surrender. And you just know that's something that you need to do. Lord, I, I just need to surrender and sacrifice myself. Just come and, just come and stand at the front just as, as an act of surrender. Just saying, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. Or maybe you're in a, in a trial you're in a trial. You're in the mystery of the trial. Maybe you know you've, you feel you've let the Lord down in some way. And you just feel that regret. Again, just, just come to the front. Just come and stand to the front. Just as an act of saying, Lord, I want to come to you this morning. Thank you that you're praying for me. Thank you that you're cheering me on. Let's just take a few moments and allow the... Holy Spirit, just to search our hearts, to speak to us. And if you sense the Lord, just quickening your heart, just speaking, then just come to the front and uh, just love to pray for you. Pray God's blessing on you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your grace. Your extraordinary grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.